I can invite you to remain standing for our scripture reading, which comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 12 through 27. Hear these words. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts of the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And the parts that we think are less honorable, we treat with special honor. And the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it. So there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. The word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. If I can invite you to be seated, please. Good morning. It's good to be here with you all today as we're continuing our sermon series where we're looking at some of the common board games that we've played and seeing how they can provide for us examples to get us thinking about our faith and about how we live our faith together. Over the past two weeks, we've looked at a couple of games. Uh, In the first week of this series, we looked at the game Operation and Matthew's Gospel, where we see how Jesus tells us that the only person we can change when it comes to our faith is ourselves. We also looked at the temptation that Jesus lifts up in that portion of the Gospel, in that part of His teaching, where He shows the disciples, He shows the Pharisees and the teachers of the law how easy it is or how tempting it is for us to pick at others in identifying their shortcomings and sins while also completely overlooking our own. Last week, or in that week, we were reminded that uh, we are uh, completely accountable for ourselves and that we're responsible for us. And the only sin we can ask forgiveness for is the sin that we ourselves commit. Last Sunday, we looked at a game, the game of life, as we looked at 1 Kings chapter 3. In 1 Kings 3, Solomon is asked by God, he says, tell me what you want of me, I'll give you anything. And so Solomon asks for wisdom. Last week we looked at how wisdom is based on knowledge, on prior experience and judgment. And while all three of those qualities are important when it comes to being wise in a biblical sense, we also have to add to that knowledge and good judgment and prior experience the guidance of God, the words of the Bible, and the Holy Spirit. For us to be biblical wise, we have to have the humility to submit ourselves to God and to His designs for our life. And for us 
and to read and to know and to, to have the Bible breathe into us the Word of God so that we're studying, so that we're knowing, so that we're connected with who God wants us to be and where God wants us to be. And part of that is reading the Bible for ourselves, not just reading someone's interpretation of what the Bible says. Uh, there's a great risk in reading and, and basing our bi- biblical knowledge just on what, how someone else reads it. For us to be biblically wise, we have to be in the Word for ourselves. We have to be open to God's guidance, and we have to be open to the promptings of the Holy Spirit as we read and as we see and as we discover what the words of the Gospels, what the words of the letter of the Paul, and what the words even in the Old Testament tell us in terms of what it means to be a man and a woman who lives in faith and who lives in response to the grace that God has given us. So friends, today we're going to be talking about a game that has been played uh, for over 1,600 years. According to uh, the website chess.com, the game of chess was born out of an Indian game called Chaturanga. From, the, from India, uh, before 600 A.D. This is a picture of the board. I don't know how you play it, so if anyone knows, go ahead. Um, the version of chess that you and I play and are probably familiar with originated in the 16th century in Europe. In 1849, a, um, a person, Jocks of London, uh, created this uniform set of chess pieces that are probably the ones that if you or I were to buy a set of chess, or to go play chess, they'd look something similar to these. And these are the standards that are used today. In the 1850s, they also introduced a chess clock to speed up gameplay. Uh, before that, games between leading players could last up to 14 hours. Well, I'm just going to say no thank you. Um, I won't even play Monopoly because it lasts longer than an hour. Um, As I read more about chess, uh, I have to tell you that I was surprised about the amount of knowledge, strategy, and history that is devoted to this game. There are strategies named after the individuals who came up with them and who designed them and who originated them. There are different plays. There's all sorts of information that goes far beyond what I ever imagined. And so before I begin summarizing it, I should be clear to you all, I've never played a lot of chess. Um, my parents don't play chess, so we didn't play chess at home really. I think my brother might have been in the chess club in maybe middle school, uh, but I was in high school then, so I wasn't going to sit around and play chess. Um, and so I, my knowledge is pretty limited. And so the few times I've played, I was awful. And so after that, I really haven't played. And so in a nutshell, chess occurs on a board that appears the same as a checkerboard. Each player has 16 pieces that are arranged on their side of the board. Each type of piece on the chessboard has a specific job or a specific move that it can make according to the rules. So you can see on this chart, you know, just what the different chess pieces can do. Pawns can, are the front row and they have specific rules that outline how they can move once per turn. They're able to move across the board and, and take pieces and then and if they get the other side... A pawn can be exchanged for a better or more powerful game piece. Rooks are the castles. Why they're called a rook, I don't know. Uh, Castles can move left, right, forward, and backward as many places as the player wants. Bishops are pieces that can move as far as the player wants as well, except a bishop can only move diagonally. Queens are the most powerful piece on the board. 
A queen can move forward, backward, left, right, and diagonally. And kings are also powerful, and they can move one space in any direction per turn. And then finally, there are knights who can move in the L shape, where you can see the knight's the horse. Uh, And the purpose of the game is to trap your opponent's king or trap the king in a position to where it cannot move, so it's in checkmate, and then you win. So I think this game can provide for us and get us to think about today's scripture in a really effective way. Because I think it's a great illustration that gets us thinking about the passage of scripture that we've read this morning and that we're studying this week, which is Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, his first letter to the church in Corinth, and it's from Corinthians chapter 12. Let's think about the church in Corinth. The church in Corinth, like many communities where the early Christian message was taken, faced conflict when the Christian message got there. Like many communities, there was conflict over who the target audience of the Christian message should be. Uh, It depended. For some, the target audience was uh, to be within the Jewish wing of the Christian church. And those who believed that Christianity was a new expression of Judaism, so it was to remain within the Jewish faith, but it was a new expression of the Jewish faith, meaning it just went farther in following the teachings of Jesus and believing that Jesus was the Messiah. They believed the the message of Jesus, the gospel message, could best be shared within the structure of the Jewish faith, the Jewish synagogue, and the Jewish community. For others, the target audience was outside of the Jewish faith, and so their focus would have been the Gentile or the Greek wing of the Christian or the Greek wing of the church that developed into the Christian church. They believed that Christianity was best spread independently of the Jewish faith and apart from the structure of the Jewish faith. And so how these two groups fit together brought a little tension and brought a little context, uh, conflict. How these church people were able to, to come together and minister together was a challenge that Paul and the early leaders of the church had to help figure out and they had to help articulate. Another struggle within the Corinthian church was who the believers followed. And what I mean by that is different individuals in the church, if they had come to faith when Paul was there, they were claiming that they were disciples of Paul. If Paul had left and they came to faith, and there was another teacher that's documented having been in Corinth after Paul and his ministry there, and that was a man named Apollos. Apollos was also an apostle of the church. He was recognized by Paul. He was recognized by Peter, by James in Jerusalem. He was a legitimate person, and he was a legitimate teacher of the faith. But if you came to faith under Apollos, there was a group of Corinthian Christians that were claiming to be disciples of Apollos. Or if it was some other individual that you had heard the gospel message under, people were claiming that they were disciples of that apostle, not of Jesus Christ. And so Paul recognized that this view could cause cause problems. He realized that this view would not build and would not grow the body of Christ. And so he told the Corinthians, which is what we read in these words, that in all things their eyes have to be pointed at Jesus and it doesn't matter who they heard the gospel message from as long as the gospel message directed them to Jesus Christ and to believing in him. And so basically he says, it doesn't matter who you come to faith under. What matters is who you follow and that's Jesus, the resurrected Christ. Jesus is the one who offers you life. 
Jesus is the one who has offered you forgiveness, and Jesus is the one who offers us salvation, not any of the men or the women who have preached and who have shared the gospel with you. And so that's where Paul's at today. As we're reading our our scripture and as we're looking at this letter to the Corinthians, because there's another issue that's come to concern with him. And the issue was the struggle over which gifts were the most important in the church. And to address this conflict, Paul provides us one of the best metaphors or images of the Christian church that we have as he takes the words of Jesus, where Jesus refers to uh, the church as being his body, And he articulates, Paul articulates, that you are part of the body of Christ. Where he says the body of Christ is like a human body. Each person, each piece in the body of Christ being essential. And each piece having his or having her role. Just like how if we were to look at the chessboard, each piece on the chessboard has its role. It has the moves it can make. It has the things that it can do. It has the rules that deal specifically with it. And so as Paul writes about the foot and the mouth and the eye and the ears, we see his words where he says this. There are many parts but one body. For Paul, the body is a unit. Though it is made up of many parts and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jew or Greek, slave or free, and we were all given one spirit to drink. Do you see what Paul's saying here? As he's looking at a church that's potentially in conflict, he's looking at a church that that people are professing to be following different teachers of the faith, and he's looking at a church and he's concerned that these people are going to get sidetracked and they're going to start following different um, teachers. And he wants them to focus on Jesus. And so what he says to them and what he says to us is you were baptized by one spirit. And that by being baptized in one spirit, we are all given the opportunity to come into the faith through God's spirit and through Jesus Christ. This also means that Paul recognizes and sees that the Christian faith and Christian practice of faith, it's not a cookie cutter faith. And what I mean by that is he doesn't see the Christian faith as one of those things where if you become a follower of Jesus... All of a sudden, you're stamped into this mold of who you're understood to be or who you're expected to be. That's not what Paul sees when he talks about the body of Christ, is it? When he talks about the gifts that we've been given, when he talks about the ways that God has chosen to work in and through our lives and through us into the community. Friends, this means that uh, the Christian faith doesn't make us identical to someone else. Nor is there the expectation there for you to be identical to another in the way that you practice and in the way that you grow in your faith. I think what Paul is saying to the church and what we can see is that God recognizes that we all come to him differently to receive his grace and to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We all have to be in God's word. We all have to be in worship. We have to be in service. We have to be in study. We have to be in prayer. And all of those practices are essential. But where your uniqueness comes into play is the way that that God speaks to you. 
Because God recognizes and celebrates that for many of us and for each of us, there are ways that we connect with the Spirit that are different than others. And what I mean by that is saying there are some that, you know, music is the way you experience Him. And so if we were to have a worship service without music, you would walk away from the worship service thinking, well, that just wasn't worship at all for me. There are others who would, you know, it's the Word, it's studying the Scripture. And so for them, a worship service without music, they might walk in thinking, man, that was the best. Um, you know, what about service? Some people, you know, it's, it's they take the, the service that they've been given, the opportunities that they've been given to, to put into to movement, into motion, and into action, things that they've read from the Scripture. And so for them, that's a way that they grow and they experience God's grace. For some, it's prayer. You know, there are some people who are blessed with the gift and the ability to be able to go into a place and pray and be in a connection and in communion with God that you and I, I think, would, uh, if, if that's not your gift, that, that's something that probably seems a bit foreign to some of us. But there are some that that's the way that God, in His uniqueness for them, allows them to celebrate and experience, you know, all it is. I, I'm just saying there's so many different ways that God recognizes our uniqueness and the way that we are able to connect with Him whether that's prayer, whether that's study, whether that's the creeds, whatever it is for you, God celebrates your uniqueness. And what I mean by that is that God takes you as an individual and God takes your uniqueness and He incorporates you and your role into the body of Jesus Christ. You have a, a role, just like the pieces in this chess game. You have a role to play, whether it's in your talents, whether it's in your gifts, whether it's in your skills, whether it's in your abilities. And see, here's the thing is God has given you all of those things so that you can use them so that they are intended to be used for his glory and for his work. He doesn't give us these things for us to to just set them aside or for them not to be put into use. He doesn't give you the gifts and the skills and everything else for you to decide that, well, it's no longer time for me to use them. Here's the thing, friends. When it comes to using your gifts for God's glory, now is always the perfect time. Because God's time is always the perfect time. And so all we can do is claim our talents. We can claim the gifts that God has given to each of us. We can use them for the work of Christ's body. We can listen to God's prompts for you and for your life. And we can trust that whenever He prompts you, He's going to use you for His glory. One of the greatest evangelists in, um, in the history of the Christian church in America was a man named D.L. Moody. Uh, he was a shoe salesman in Boston when he was uh, graduated from high school and he worked in his uncle's shoe store. There he attended a church at his uncle's insistence. I'm sure it was one of those, if you live with me, if you work for me, you're going to go to church with me. Uh, but one day a Sunday school teacher named Edward Kimball went to Moody in the shoe store and as Moody was working in the back room, wrapping boxes of shoes and wrapping shoes, Kimball spoke to him about the work of God and about the grace that God had given him and about how he needed a real relationship with Jesus. Moody made the decision to follow Jesus, and the rest of it was history, as he became one of the leading evangelists in the 1800s, 1800s uh, for the remainder of his life, all because one person spoke to him about God. 
Friends, all I'm saying is you don't have to be the one in front. You don't have to be the one, you know, that, that everyone's looking to. God has given us his gifts so that in all things he might be glorified as long as we fulfill and follow the work that he's given us. Because he has a place for each of us. And as long as we use our skills and as long as we use our gifts for his glory, we fulfill our role in the body of Christ who God graciously allows us and invites us to be a part of. Amen.